Change management is kind of a buzzword these days. Why don't we tease it out? Let's focus on that second word, management, because this is the word that really demands attention. Without attention to the managing, the how part, you can sabotage the change. In my strategy work, we help clients envision how they want their organization to be different like three or five years down the road. Let's put it this way. Let's say my client is at point A. We help them to define point B. And often, because nonprofit work is often literally a matter of life and death, there's a sense of real urgency about getting to be really, really fast. Then I want you to add into the mix the urgency and uncertainty of an election year. And and now we've got a real stew. Nonprofit leaders are running like hell towards B as fast as they possibly can. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. An organization might get a grant to add a program they aren't quite ready for. Or maybe an animal welfare organization needs to leave its current space and the new space will be radically different with exponentially greater opportunities for impact and your lease expires in nine months. My work is so often about managing the tensions that come with change. CEO transitions, board transformations, breaking down silos. And the tension? Well, you know this. Change is just really hard for people. Inertia is a mighty powerful force in our lives, but you can't thrive as a nonprofit leader if you don't embrace change. And you sure can't thrive if you are not very, very attentive to how you manage it. You'll never successfully get from point A to point B without a great deal of attention, thought, care, compassion, and truth-telling all throughout the journey. My guest today told me when we first met, quote, the better you manage the tension, the faster you can go, end quote. I know, I got your attention with that, didn't I? Because you want to go fast. So many people are counting on you, right? The need is greater than your ability to deliver. And you know what? All of us want you to go fast too. So we better start learning about managing the tensions. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She is here to help. I'm joined today by Michael DePass. Michael leads the K-12 education sector work at the Center for Creative Leadership, a nationally recognized leadership development institute. Michael is all about change management, organizational development, and creativity and innovation. In his work at the Center for Creative Leadership, known to many as CCL, he has led school turnarounds, developed strategic plans, and Michael's work in the nonprofit sector includes being a founding leader of a faith-based community development organization, being on the research staff and leading youth programming for a Ford Foundation-funded Africa-focused advocacy and policy initiative, and being in a senior leadership role in an international development firm. He also brings a tour of duty with McKinsey and Company, a global management consulting firm to his work, and a Harvard MBA and a Bachelor of Theology. Michael, if I do my job well today, I hope we can tap into everything that you are bringing here to our (laughs) virtual table. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here today. Well, good. Um, Let's begin with an open-ended question, like an open-ended essay question. (laughs) Um, change is a serious constant in the world of nonprofits. I mean, they are in the business of change, right? Changing minds, changing laws, changing lives. Um, they're in the business of changing the world for the better. Arguably those people, those leaders should be very good at this. 
What have you learned about the nonprofit sector and how leaders contend with change? Wow. What a starting question. <laughs> well, I, said I, it was it. An, I thought it was an open-ended essay question. <laughs> exactly. Well, I agree. My, my experience has been um, that change is rampant and it's happening at so many different levels. And, you know, sometimes people think of the analogy of clocks, right? So that it's a nonprofit leader or education leader. Um, you have the sense of, I've got clocks that are ticking for um, funders demands. I have clocks that are ticking for changing students' lives or people's lives. And all of those things create a tremendous sense of pressure um, in leadership around the change initiative. And at the same time, kind of what fuels us through change is often our values, right? Our strong kind of passion and commitment to see and create a better world. And we also have values about how we want the organization to go, how we want the change to go. And those values are a power source for us. And they can also create some problems for us. Um, And so that's kind of what I'm excited to talk about today is in tensions that show up we generally have preferences. So let's just take the core when we're talking about change um, in tradition, let's say. So we might have a preference as the leader for change. We might be in an organization that has a lot of history, has a lot of um, legacy about ways, things that have done that have been successful and worked. So you can see the setup there, which is <laughs> we've got competing values, strong passion that can power us. Um, and you could see even just in that little example, maybe headed for a little bit of a rough patch. Do you think, um, do you think that leaders in general, maybe more specifically nonprofits, schools and other kinds of nonprofits, that they really understand the importance of focusing on the journey from the sort of the A to the B? Or do you think that they're so hell bent on getting to B that they don't actually realize that how you get there makes all the difference of whether you actually do get there. I personally have a lot of painful experiences of being a part of organizations that did not focus beyond the kind of short-term immediate pressure and goal, as you you mentioned, from A to B. And then the longer-term piece um, of kind of the casualty of moving too fast from A to B um, often is not seen. And um, can have, if you step back and look at the bigger picture of what we're about, can have significant consequences. I've seen nonprofit organizations that are part of basically running to the ground um, because of well-intentioned people, super passionate, going as fast as they can, and really not paying attention to any of the warning signs that there's something that they're not managing correctly in the change. And then all of a sudden, that mission that they've given so much for is basically gone uh, because they weren't able to uh, to manage what, what we're talking about right now. So I believe that you just perked up some ears as you said that. And um, I'm going to put myself in the head of one of my listeners and say, okay, that okay. guy just said, Michael just said, there are warning signs. Like, because I'm actually, I'm going as fast as I can. That's why I'm listening to this podcast. Right, so, right. So can you tell me, um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to park the warning signs for just a second. Okay. Be, be patient, listeners. Um, what's at the heart of the tension, right? We talk about this tension of managing the change. What's at the heart of it, do you think, Michael? 
So at the heart of the tension is, um, and kind of the idea that we're talking about today, sometimes it's called uh, managing dilemmas, polarity management. Um, and the, the core of this idea is that they are values that need each other over time and go together. What's hard for us is because of our passion and our values, we have preferences. And so let's take a common one many of us are familiar with, decentralization and centralization. So we may have a preference as a particularly as an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial person for decentralization or empowerment or kind of bringing decisions down to the lowest possible level in the organization, the okay. person who's closest to the action. And we might have lots of reasons. We might have been in organizations that didn't do that and we saw bad things happen. And so now we're really motivated for that. The, what polarity thinking teaches us is that these, there's a relationship between centralization and decentralization. And if we only focus on either one, there are downsides. Our passion causes us sometimes to really, in our history and all those things, to really focus on one and not really pay attention to the other. And that sets us up for a predictable, um, predictable challenge. So, so, okay. So tease that out for me. So, um, okay. So I'm, I run an organization and I know that it's, I know that not people come to nonprofits in order to have a voice. And so this notion of decentralizing power, um, in the organization and making sure that my people have a voice is really important. But I also, I also have pretty strong feelings about what decisions ought to be made. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's what you're talking about, right? And so when we talk about what I think what you're telling me is that if you set it up as a, as a either, or, um, you get, you get stuck in, I I don't know. I don't know what to tell me what, go go further. You got it. And maybe can I tell you a little story? Yeah, go. Okay. So there was a, a nonprofit I was a part of that was, um, the founder had a huge passion around empowerment, right? And decision-making and, and variety. So um, within three years, 30 sites opened up in probably eight states and, you know, had lots of funny, lots of mandate to go change kids' lives. And so what happened was we were getting all of the benefits of all of that decentralization empowerment. People were hired like me who were like, yes, finally, we get a chance to do it the right way, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and we were going for it. And then over time, there started to be a lot of pressure on the organization because performance was very uneven in these sites. And it was difficult to support 14 different programs in eight different states to centrally support those things. So best practices were hard to share. And things We started getting into some of the predictable downsides of over-focusing on the independence and empowerment. And so the founder... Their response to that is, well, we have the uneven performance because we don't have enough variety. Why? Because that's their defining value. It was their huge motivation. So they pushed the organization farther, more to less policies, less consistency, less measurement, more individual autonomy, which accelerated the pressure the organization was under externally from funders and from governments. And so this is what we're talking about. There's some relationship. Um, obviously, we had a conglomeration of people who were there, as you mentioned, because they wanted to do it kind of a better way, do it a different way. And because there's a relationship between these two of empowerment and centralization, meaning over time, we need both. We need the organization to have a way of sharing best practices, having standards, particularly in that case, we're dealing with children. There are things that needed to happen everywhere. And yet 
a huge value on the empowerment and decentralization cause it to be very difficult for the founder to see that, wait a minute, these, it's not a good, bad, it's not a black, white thing. I actually need both of these things. I need to figure out how I, how I can have both. And without that, eventually the organization really spun out of control because the external, the funders and the, um, the regulators said this, this, this can't, um, we can't allow this kind of inconsistency and basically almost shut down the organization. So that's just a story to kind of illustrate that over time. So the question for us is, is there a way with our strong values and passion to actually recognize when there's something else that's connected and related and looks very different in this case, centralization, decentralization, and how could we handle both? Because in this case, it felt like we were going fast, but if you, if you, if you look in a zero to three year, it felt like we were going really fast, right? They added 30 sites, eight states, all that. If you look in a five-year window, we're not going fast at all. Hmm. 10-year window, not getting anywhere at all right. because of the mismanagement of the tension. Interesting. So I'm, I'm going to build a kind of an example that maybe we can use as we continue through this. It's an amalgam, amalgam of things. So let's, let's say uh, you run an organization that is a suicide hotline. Yeah. And, and for, it doesn't matter what the reasons are, but whatever those reasons are, the, the, there's a, just a dramatic increase in the number of calls. Mm. And the organization has a, a far greater need than its ability to deliver on these, on these calls and to deliver on them well. And so the organization is starting to drive really fast. And as a result, they actually are able to raise tons of money. Yeah. Okay. And so then they can add all of these new people. So the, the, here's the right. So the good news is I started as a small, scrappy organization. The yes. bad news is that the environment has actually created greater need for my services. That's bad yeah. news. Yes. Um, and then kind of, you know, good news is that I have funders who see that and are throwing money at me. And so in a, in a matter of a short period of time, I started with 20 people and maybe now I have 60 people over a yeah. two or three year period. Um, and we all know that we're, you know, answering more calls and all of that. But there's just it's it's a completely different. It feels like a completely different organization. So if we can use that as our model, yes, the, the, yes. the, okay, so the organization's mission is not changing. It's not adding any kind of a program that it didn't have before. It's not building right. a building. It's not changing a site. It's just actually growing like a weed. So um, let's use that as an example and, and tell me, if I'm running that place – you talked about warning signs, but I actually, I would like to get out in front of it. How should I lead? How should I be thinking about the fact that one of my staff members is walking down the hall and sees two people they've actually never met before because they just started yeah. last week, right? Yeah. So what's, what, what can I as a leader do to manage those tensions of, wow, I used to be, I used to be able to answer X number of calls and now I have to, now the leader says I have to answer Y number of calls. Like it feels like a different organization. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 be a little prescriptive. Give me, give me advice. I run this organization, and I don't, I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to run it into the ground by running too fast. So, let me give you two kind of general 
mindsets and then some specific uh, things to look for. So the first mindset is, um, so a lot of times as leaders, we're wanting to avoid tensions, right? Because we have preferences. So let's just say that leader has a preference for kind of walk around management, being able to just see and talk to people not really doing policy manuals or anything like that. They just kind of like getting people together, learning. So that's a preference. Now, then when you get to 60 employees and people start saying, I don't know how to do this, or I don't know what to do this. Sometimes the leader can feel judged by that, right? They feel judgment in the fact that people are starting to articulate, they don't have things that they need. And sometimes we feel the judgment because actually they're the founder or the leader and things are kind of set up along their preferences, right? They have disproportionate impact on the culture. So the first thing is to be paying attention. We talked about early warning signs before to be paying attention to the message in, um, in the, in the feedback that's not positive, right? That a lot of times in these contexts, people are like, Oh, I'm so glad you're doing it. I'm so thankful. Like they're just heaping praise on you. And you know, they're there for, you've given them an opportunity to fulfill their mission. Um, so the mindset is I'm looking, I'm actually looking for what's not working. I'm actually interested when people bring it. I demonstrate interest. Mm-hmm. Oh, tell me more about that. I don't think that. Tell me more about that. It's often not our orientation. We're like fast, fast, fast. Got to go, got to go. This, this person's, you know, on the, in, on the bus or not on the bus. And there's a time for whether someone's on the bus or not. But when they're bringing information, even if it's not packaged in the way we want to receive it, there are clues in the information about attention. Some part of the attention you don't feel. So it is hard as a leader to know what everyone else feels. So the second mindset is to ask. Um, if I want to manage a high growth phase or a decline or a spinoff or a merger, part of it is asking the question, figuring out what are the ways I'm going to check in and ask people about what they're experiencing and make it safe for them not to give me kumbaya. Okay, so those are the two mindsets. In terms of specific things in this case, there's one tension that we all face in every group and organization between relationship and task. So I want to be paying attention to that, which is, the organization's needs force you to focus on the task. You're going to figure out how to organize the 60 people for the task. Right. The question is, how do you foster the relationship part? So how do I let, as we're growing, how am I intentionally, what are the action steps to allow people to build a relationship with each other and to allow people to feel like they're part of a culture, not just a person who's coming in and answering calls between two and four. Um, the other one is uh, this standardization and uh, freedom or flexibility. So the more I get to 60 people and it's a life or death situation that we're talking about here, I need to be paying attention to standardization, regardless of what I feel about it and how, whether I like having scripts and manuals and training sessions where we're talking about best practices and common ways of doing things. And this can be really challenging if the leader who starts an organization like this is very creative and their way of breaking through with people who are calling the hotline is kind of something that can't really be replicated. Well, now you have 60 people and everyone's not you and they don't have the skills you have. So then the organization has to, you have to figure out how do I allow the creativity and flexibility for people who maybe bring different skill sets, they're therapists, they bring other kinds of tools. And at the same time, I've got to make sure there's some minimum, like in this story I told, there's some minimum threshold of performance. And that has to come, and I that has to come from more of the managerial side, right? which is I'm recording conversations. Someone's listening to them. We're giving people feedback. We're 
coaching around scripts. If someone says this, what do we, how do we respond? How do I expect you to respond? I mean, all of that could be very different. So part of, if I can play back something I heard, part of what I'm hearing is, um, so I as a leader have to um, really, really be almost overly attentive to the relationship piece in my organization as change is happening. Um, uh, That's one thing I heard. The other thing I feel like I heard is that people, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, I just know this, is that um, the people in a setting of rapid change also need to, they need to have guardrails and that systems, policies, and standardization provide them Again, if the relationships are built and a messaging is right, provide them with some comfort that enables them to go with the change and also enables you to continue to have the the kind of impact you need to have on the people who call. Yes. So let me jump in on that. Um, what's hard What's hard about it is it's dynamic. So the other thing I would add to what you just said about the policies and procedures. So leaders who do this well they actually are paying attention to what's needed now. Mm-hmm. Now, the default of that is to, is to go out of your preference. So the story I told you, the, the founder is going out of his preference, which is I like things like this. The loose, that the loose creative loose. thing. I like loose and independent, flexible, yeah. tricky. So it is this piece of, yes, they need policies and it provides, um, it provides comfort and it's got to be dynamic. So the question for the leader is, how do you get out of your own head and figure out for right now, for this level, for these people, what do they need as it relates to this tension? I would say a similar thing about the relationship. It's not, it's not the touchy-feely, does everyone feel good? Because change is going to bring discomfort. The question is, what are the opportunities to build the kind of relationships that the organization needs at this level, at this place? So if you're a nonprofit in five states, and people never are physically together. It's a diff. The action steps are different, but that doesn't mean you give yourself an out and say, "Well, we're not physically together, so I don't need to worry about the relationship part." Probably means you need to be more intentional. How am I going to help people to make the kind of connections they need, both to feel a sense of belonging and connection, which is part of what keeps people right? They're making trade-offs and salary and all kinds of things. So, what's in it for them? For some people, it's the relationships. I get to work with like-minded people who are passionate. But the other is in order to do the work and everyone not to be running to one leader, you need to build capacity for people to help each other and pick up the phone. And that doesn't come from focusing on the task. That comes from thinking about the relationship and paying attention to for these people in this context and best case, asking, what do you need? And not trusting as a leader what you need. Because the leader, you might be more of a recluse. You have low need for interpersonal connection and all those things. That is dangerous to try to say, well, I'm going to use myself as a measure for mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of connection we need. Dangerous. Right. No. The question is, for the people that you're leading, what do they need? Mm-hmm. And they have the best ideas about what they need. Not that you agree with everything, but they have the best ideas, the best clues. So all this is really, you can hear an orientation toward information. What kind of information are you seeking and your self-awareness that my preferences, this organization should not be a reflection of my preferences. If I'm serving well, it's going to be a reflection of my understanding of the needs of the people who are in this with me. 
Tell me about, so I'm, I'm running this organization, this suicide hotline. And when, when we were 20, there was a, there was a camaraderie. A, a, people yeah. would have said it was a really good vibe to work. Not, yeah. I mean, not obviously in a very difficult setting, but that actually was important that in a, a setting where it's, where the work is difficult, the, this camaraderie is really, really important. You have yeah. to, you know, you really have to take care of each other. Um, and I'm going to try to come back to that because I think what happens outside an organization needs to happen inside an organization. Mm. But now I'm, now I'm 60 instead of 20. Is there a way to hang on to, and is it important to keep the, keep the culture or that vibe the same? Or does it, does that too evolve? Cause I, I feel like that's a piece of it. It's like, wow, this isn't the organization it used to be. Yeah. So talk a little bit about culture and, and does that shift change or do you, are you able to maintain the, the, the kernel of what that organization culture was at 20 when you get to 60? Wow. That is an amazing question. <laughs> wow. I, you know, it's kind of a stumper because I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. I, I do mean, think... I, I actually think there is kind of an easy answer, but, okay, I, but I'm okay. not the guest. Which is, <laughs> that the I, kernel, think... I think the kernel has to be the same. Yeah, yeah. I, the I, methods, I was going to say, I think the methods have to change. And where we get stuck is equating the kernel of the culture with the methods. So the way it was expressed when you're 20 could be, oh, we just, you know, we can't went camping twice a year and we all got just got in our cars and went out and had a bonfire. So that method might not work at 60, right? It may not work at three different sites in three states. But the core essence of what draw what drew people to the place, that's something um, that you have to fight for. And I would just say the evolution part is, I think, and, and co-create with others. So yes, yes, yes. I what I was just thinking a, is like, it's yeah. like, yeah. So what I'm thinking is like, okay, the, the kernel remains the same and I now have 60. Do I not somehow or another engage the 60 and say, look, we're, we're 60 now. We're not 20. We can't go camping anymore. Right. But, and that, what I understand, what I see is the kernel of our culture is kind of, these are kind of the components of it. Yes. Do you agree with that? And, oh, and I agree. if yeah, 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 no, so right, and then you say that to the team, and they, they say, you know, the twenty people who were here at the beginning can tell you that our culture was really scrappy, and it was this, this, yes. this, and this, and we want to figure out a way to maintain that. The, but the methodology is going to need to be different. Help me yeah. with that. Yeah, a hundred percent. And yeah. and back to the tensions, you know, the, in this organizational example. So we don't want to lose scrappy. And, and so if there's a tension between scrappy and kind of buttoned up and professional. So when all this money has come in and all this training and all this stuff, we don't want to lose scrappy. So part of the idea with polarities is we have the conversation. How do we maintain scrappy? Yes. And raise the game in the professional technical standards. That's the, that's the essence of polarity thinking is to not say, Oh, we have all this money now and the funders and the expectations and the site visits. So now everything's got to get buttoned up. If we do that, we're going to kill the culture. It's back to the over the example, the story I told the reverse of it, right? Yes. We get so buttoned up. The people who came for scrappy are like, ah, I don't really like it here anymore. And, and yet there's a reality as the, as the person who's interacting with the funders and the regulators and all those people that maybe they're, you know, there's more scrutiny. It's got to look a little different. 
So how do we do both is the essence. If you take nothing else away from this conversation, uh, with how do we do thinking, both? it's and it's not, or it's not, well, we've got all this money and these expectations. So we've got to switch to this. It's how do we respond to the new needs and not lose the thing that's been a kind of defining part of our culture in this, this example that we're right. playing. So in this example, we're, we're fooling around with here. Don't you think that uh, I, well, I think, <laughs> I think, and then you can tell me if you agree. I kind of think that people, um, people think that, um, well, it's a bigger organization. It's not scrappy anymore. Right. And they yeah. lose the scrappy people. And they think that that's okay because they're not scrappy anymore. Yeah. But haven't they lost something? Absolutely. What have they lost, Michael? So the way, so, I mean, they've lost in some ways, some of the inspiration for the work. Yes. They've lost, um, you know, critical kind of knowledge, but on the culture side, a sense of who we are. Right. And, And it's not to say that we should hold on to people, you know, forever for no reason, but we should be aware of the cost. And so back to the and we'll be better in that situation is we figure out how we do this and that. If we don't, the other thing that can happen is we lose the scrappy people. We overfocus on the kind of buttoned up and all the stuff professionalized. And then people, it gets to a point where we lose so many people and there's kind of a, such a loss of confidence that people, the board or someone says, Hey, we need someone scrappy. We need a new scrappy leader to come in. What happens? Scrappy leader comes in, swings the other way. Yes. The people who are in the measurement and the more professionalized button up who give us what we need in order to meet those external demands, those people leave. They're like, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't sign up for this. You know, people are throwing out measurement. They're just kind of, you know, going camping. So we go into another cycle. So the whole op- opportunity of polarity development, uh, of polarity management is we can skip that. If we, if we start with and, how do we do this and that? We can skip the years of overfocus on one thing. And then someone finally says, oh, enough of that. Let's go back to scrappy, right? And then we get into the downside. We get all the benefits of that and we get into the downsides. And someone says, enough of that. We've got external demands. We need to look a certain way. We can actually have both. If we're intentional and say, both of these things value, both of these things matter, both have value. I have a preference, but I'm not going to shape the whole organizational life by my preference. I'm going to actually figure out what's necessary here for the people I have in this context to get both. And back to the early warning signs we talked about, once I do that, I can ask the question, what would be the early warning signs that we've gone too far? So of the group that has scrappy and more more kind of buttoned up, I can ask, what, what would be the warning signs that we've gone too far on scrappy? And the people who are more focused on measurement and standardization will say, oh, I'll, I'll tell you, like, if these things start happening, and usually the things they come up with, no one wants those things, right? It's like, like no one, not the scrappy people, not nobody yeah, wants no those wants things. But it is a fear in the mind, right? And so we want to capture that. We want to use that. We want to use that fear and resistance and say, great, let's go in the other way. To the scrappy people, to the whole people, but the scrappy people will tell us, if we get more focused on measurement and standardization, all those things, if we've gone too far, what would that look like? And they'll tell us like, well, there are lots of things we can standardize, but these things are really where the magic is, right? These are this kind of secret sauce. And usually the people who are more focused on, you know, measurement and outcomes, and those sort of things will be like, great. Okay. That's no problem. I wasn't a- advocating for every second being scripted out. I, you know, we really just need ways, consistent ways to collect data and we need da 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 da. So now we have the early warning signs. Now together, we actually have this picture of how this tension is. 
and we can manage it together. We can, some of them can say, so we talked about this as an early warning sign. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing evidence of going too far. Can we talk about it? That's a radically different conversation than this person's, you know, doesn't get it. This person doesn't understand. They're, you know, they're crazy. No, this conversation is the tension we're all in. We're trying to manage it together. And we actually both want some greater purpose, right? We all want this organization to thrive. We all want these things. And we're going to manage, in this case, you know, that we're playing with kind of scrappy and more kind of grown-up nonprofit um, demands uh, of the organization. We're going to manage them together. Well, what I also hear in this, too, is that um, the scrappy people feel <laughs> different from the buttoned-up people. And by the way, yeah. buttoned-up people can be scrappy and scrappy people can be buttoned-up. Let's be really clear. <laughs> <We're>, right. right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, they – by asking them what it would – like what don't you want to have happen, yes. they're going to actually all have the same kinds of answers, Right. About organizationally. Right. Um, Or, you know, if you put the fears out on the table, the fears are and it's actually going to tie the scrappy and the buttoned up together in a way that will um, that will be of great benefit. That's the end part. Right. Yes. Um, Yes. I also think that um, key to this is I often think I often talk about how people who join a nonprofit organization it's it's a little it's a little Quaker that I get from my best friend but <laughs> but like they everybody has this like light on about the organization they come because yeah. their light yes. is particularly on yes. in a, in a setting like this where there's rapid change don't you think that there's a a bigger responsibility for the leader to make sure that that light stay not just stays on, but is ignited and rec- and helps people to recognize that everybody's got that same fire in their belly. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And, and this kind of, and thinking is the way we get away. What, what distinguishes that more than anything is the judgments of each other, right? The more, as we get the diversity, the judgments of, who does and who doesn't and who's in and who, who gets it and who doesn't get it. And the and is a frame that allows us to actually embrace that diversity and say that and be able to see all these people. It may look a little different as we go from 20 to 60 and we have different kinds of people coming on, but everyone's here with that same passion. Everyone's here with that same sense of purpose. And yep. Uh, and I think that that's really critical. So we are talking with Michael DePass, um, and he is from the Center for Creative Leadership. Uh, and he is um, our expert today talking about rapid change. Um, he is a, a change management guy, organizational development, creativity, and innovation for the particular focus on K through 12 schools, but uh, brings a ton of nonprofit experience across the board. Um, okay. I'm not, again, I'm, I'm in the head of that listener who's like on a treadmill or in the in traffic yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Um, how do I know I'm in trouble? Like, how do I know I'm not doing this? Well, oh my goodness! You're, okay, you're telling me all this stuff. Like, what's a, what's an ex, what's a really specific example of something that, in like, perhaps in the setting we were just describing, that says mission mission control, Joan, you have a problem. What what would be an example of that to say I didn't do all of those things that Michael DePass said I should have done <laughs> at the beginning? How do I know I have a problem? What does that look like? Wow. Um- I think the way the problem shows up, and I would say, so one is we all have a problem, meaning 
if we're a leader with intention, we want to go someplace. We all have a quote unquote problem, which is um, everyone's not us and there's some resistance. I would say that one of the key lessons here is to lean into the resistance. So the first place is to look at where the resistance is in the organization. And if you don't know where it is, you're not asking, right? Because people, <laughs> if you're in an organization, now when I say resistance, I don't mean that as a bad thing, that people are paying attention to something that you're not paying attention to. They're worried about something. So the first place to start is to find out what are people worried about? What are people worried about when they think about the future of the organization? What are people worried about when they think about the mission of the organization and delivering on that? That's, I mean, this is not hard. It's not hard to start to unpack it. You have to have an openness to the fact that um, you want to hear it, right? It's leaning into the resistance instead of like, you know, a lot of times nonprofit leaders are overwhelmed. Like they don't, they don't, they're a little afraid to actually open that door, right? Yeah. They'd rather kind of close the door and say, look, let's just get the people who want to do it the way we're doing it on here. And let's go fast. But back to the example we were playing with in the whole theme of speed. Yep. In that example of the scrappy and the more buttoned up, how much faster can we go after we've had that conversation yeah. than going through the extreme, one extreme to another, to another, losing great people unnecessarily and all that? How much faster can we go if we can now have a language in the hallway to call each other on stuff? Say, hey, we talked about our preferences around this and we're going to, we've committed to do both. It's it, so if someone's thinking like, I haven't done those things and I'm not sure what's going on. It's really in what are people struggling with? And then you having the mindset that is there a value that's related to this? So, you know, is there a value that's connected to this? That's opposite that we need to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's it's a starting point. Boy, leaders have to be so present in, in, in ways that, that it's, it's hard to imagine having the time to be. I, I'm, I was thinking about two things that I see, and I wonder if you see them as well, as sort of warning signs that, that you might not be managing the tension well. Uh, one of them is sil departmental silos. Um, and the other one, so maybe we can talk, touch on each of them briefly, but I see people going to their corners right, to their comfort yeah. place. I'm yeah. So that I end up seeing more, gee, I don't know what that other person does. That person's in my way, right? So yeah. silos is one thing I see. Um, and the other thing I see is um, challenges around diversity in its broadest sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that and it goes back to voice versus yeah. feeling voiceless. Yes. Um, and it could be multi-generational diversity. It could be we're moving so fast to hire. We're hiring all the same kinds of people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I see that's part to me, those feel like warning signs when I deal with clients who are undergoing change. When I see um, real silo mindset and I see lots and lots of heat and light around diversity issues. Those seem to yeah. be um, clues or signals. And I wonder if, if, if you agree um, and if, if you have, you seen that as well. Yeah. So let's start with the second one. And the first, okay. I think, I think, um, I think actually the lack of robust conversation is also a clue related to the diversity issue. Yes. The lack of people pushing back and engaging with each other, right? That's, that's an I that gives you an idea that people have gotten a message 
that there's one way to see and think and be. And if you have a different opinion, keep your mouth shut. Yes. Keep it moving. Um, So I I totally agree with that. I think the diversity challenge is, um, and if there's a lot of conflict around diversity issues, I think that's basically people who are looking at different parts of something that's connected, values are different, and the conflict is coming out of um, lack of just seeing and managing what's actually the tension here and what's the and here. Well, right? So without the right. and, the, just loggerheads. The other thing, you used the word before called, you used the word belonging. Mm. And and I and it feels to me like there's a connection between the diversity issues that rise up in rapidly growing organizations and an anxiety about losing a sense of belonging and or what belonging me I don't know maybe I'm maybe I'm kind of rambling here but there's something is there something about belonging and and diversity and rapid growth that 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 intersect I mean what comes to my mind is you know, one of the tensions we would talk about is between part and whole, right? So my part of the organization, my, you know, my part might be a technical part, like I'm a, I'm I, on the measurement side or yeah, the IT back or office side, or yeah. I'm on the program delivery side, right? That's my part. And then the whole, how do we connect together? And the more we're in rapid growth, the more strain it puts on people seeing the whole. Yes. Back to what you were saying before, you, the more intentional you have to be in making the connections that the person who's doing the numbers and the bean counting and the person who's answering the phone in that crisis hotline are, we're part of the same whole. And it's not the needs of one isn't intended to dominate everyone else, right? Everyone else's needs at the same time, at any given point in time, we're going to, we're going to need to push, right? We need to push on finance at some points in time because, the way we're set up in funding things isn't working for our mission. We're going to need to push um, the, the program delivery and sometimes because it's not sustainable and the organization is going to go away if we don't find a more cost-effective way. And so that part and whole tension is a big part of those groups. And then they also part and whole can be around um, ethnic identification or uh, sexual identification. And so the bigger the organization is, the other big challenge for leaders is how do I allow people the comfort of identifying with other people who are like them, the part, and also grow and cultivate a sense of a whole, and yet all together we're something. And again, if we pick one or the other, we're in trouble, right? If we pick, I'm just going to raise up the parts, then over time it leads us down a path where there's nothing connects us. If we say it's just about the whole, people who are in, in the minority for in lots of different ways will feel less a sense of belonging connection because they don't have the benefit, the privilege of just being in the, of having the majority getting relationships, connection resources, just because they're like everyone else. I, and so it's so interesting because I thought of those as two different warning signs, but they're Mm. actually, they're actually so connected, right? I am part of this group. I'm either out of power or I'm voiceless or whatever it might be that the silo diversity belonging thing is sort of of a cloth, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, I could, I could have this conversation all morning, but, um, the people who are (laughs) listening actually probably have to go to work or, um, they cannot, they can't, I was going to say, they're not going to be able to put any more time on the machine. So, um, I want you to just talk really briefly about um, 
the value of um, the, the sort of polarity map that you talked with me about when we spoke last week is is that a tool that can be helpful to people? I just want to I just want to raise that up a little bit so that sure. people can say, all right, well that's great, Michael and Joan, but now you've made my job feel so big, like I want to crawl in a hole. Right. Because I'm supposed to raise money and then I'm supposed to talk about the whole, make people feel like they're part of their part. Like, well, come on. I'm supposed to have conversations in the hall. But can the polarity map help? And just talk a little bit about that tool briefly. And we'll put the resource um, on my site as well. Okay. Okay. Great. So polarity map, um, I've done with people on a dirt floor and it can be done in very sophisticated um, PowerPoint and all that kind of stuff. So the polarity map at its core just takes the two values that we value, that we both are that are competing in some ways in our mind. That we're Scrappy turn and to buttoned an up. Exactly, exactly. And then we look at, or what are the benefits of each, and what are the downsides of overfocusing on one to the neglect of the other? And we can all do this. If we pick a polarity task relationship, whatever it is, we'll all we can all do that together. The key then is that we add action steps on both sides. So. What are the things we're going to do to keep the scrappy culture? And then on the other side, what are the things we're going to do to professionalize our organization, right? As we grow and we have funds and funding and expectations that are putting demands. And then for each of those two, you see, what are the early warning signs that we've gone too far on one to the neglect of the other? And we do that together. And so it's not actually a big, heavy thing. Meaning in a converse, conversation with people, you can discern what the biggest tension is. You can get people in a room and say, let's just fill in this map about what are the benefits of these two things. These two things are both critical. And the one other piece that, Joan, you referenced before is we do the greater purpose. What's in it for us if we manage this well? What's the mm. greater purpose that unites us? Really powerful. The, at the bottom, there's something called the deeper fear. What if we don't do this well? Or mm. what if we don't manage scrappy and kind of professionalize well? What's going to happen? What's the thing that we all fear? So we, we're, we're kind of bookended on the map by the hmm. things that unite us. We're also exploring what are the things that are different and how do we get both? This releases the tension for people. Because if I see that you're not negating what I bring in pursuing the change, you're actually providing for it. We're actually going to agree on action steps. And then, because I'm afraid we're going to go too far in the way that I don't value you're asking me what the early warning signs are. Yeah. I'm in. I'm yeah. in. Like there's no, there's nothing to resist because we're going to manage it together. And so this doesn't, like I said, you could do this on a dirt floor. It does not something that's heavy. The, the key is back to the mindset. Am I open? Am I aware that my preferences as the leader, as positional leader, my preferences may be warping the organization in some ways, it may make it hard for me to see other people's needs. If I have that, I can just start with what's kind of the biggest thing that people are um, either fighting about or arguing right. about that's actually might fit together that you from the leader, from your seat, you're like, I need both. Of these. That's not an either word for me. Totally. Bring people together, build a map on a flip chart, a sheet of paper, a drip floor and see what unites us together and how we're going to get both. Um, that, it's, I mean, I I could draw that. You anybody who's listening right now d- doesn't need to go to a website to get any kind of template. That there it right. is. I, I hope you, if you if you are not someplace where you take notes, I hope you go back and take notes on that. And I um I have one last thing, and then we we must wrap, which sure. is um, it's not ever too late in the process of change to do what you're describing. Is it exactly? Please, so that, that that feels like such an important thing for everyone yes. to hear because I know yes. that people are listening and they're saying. I did not do that. 
I don't know if I have time, but I see why it's important. And I think I have some of that early warning stuff brewing in my organization. It's not too late to stop. 100%. Right. Take a deep breath and have those have those A's and B's do that kind of exercise. Exactly. And be open to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this was a really interesting conversation, Michael. And, you know, I I usually send out discussion guides to my hosts, to my guests ahead of time. I don't think we did anything. I I often say to people that I hope that they will feel like we're having a cup of coffee and having a good discussion. That's exactly what this felt like. Thank you so much, Michael. Me too. Me too. Really a pleasure. Thank you so much. And and do know, Michael, that this, I, I just can't imagine this is going to resonate in a very big way for the people who are listening today. So your uh, 40, 50 minutes or so has been a real gift to people who are listening today. So oh, I'm very, so very much. grateful. We're all, we're all in it together. Indeed so we are. A, Indeed yeah, we are. Yeah. So that's Michael DePass from the Center for Creative Leadership. And um, I, 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 all I would say is that it's going to help me be a better consultant having had this conversation. So, um, no, thank you so, so thanks to you and um, thanks to everybody who's listening. And thank you, as always, for the work that you do. Um, hope that we have uh, made a little bit of a dent and in, the, uh, in the, the, the mountain you're climbing. And uh, we look forward to talking to you next time. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.